Hello and welcome to Harness Your Hopes. In this series, six West of Ireland writers have written a new short story on the theme of harnessing hope. They're going to read it and then I'll have a chat with them about their craft and how the theme inspired them. My name is Orla Foyle, and I'm going to read from my story in Lorient. I was in Lorient in northern France to meet up with my brother Max. I'd been there for two days wandering in and out of functional cafes, and every so often I walked down to the beach to where kids hung out at the war bunkers, drinking, swearing, having sex. I sat down on the sand and watched the sea come in, then go out. I was waiting. I dug my toes into the wet sand and I waited for Max to answer my texts. The drunk kids got fed up of me sitting there and threw their beer cans, so I did something I saw in a film once. I lifted my right arm, cocked my thumb and aimed my index and middle fingers right at the drunken teens and I yelled, Bitches better respect. Pow, pow. Then I got up and walked away. It was night and my head was pounding. Men looked at me as I passed them on the footpaths. The French love correct behaviour. They adore manners. But I ploughed on and through. I heard mort, putain, and fuck you. I laughed at them and walked on to my hotel room. It was a stuffy night. I shoved open the windows and stared at the sky. Lights were all on all over the place, so the sky wasn't as real as it should have been with just the stars on fire. I bit my fingernails for a while. I had a shower, and I wandered naked in front of the open window. Then I put on a red dress, then I put on knickers. Then I leaned outwards on my balcony window. A few men looked up at me. I caught their looks, then I looked away. I lit a cigarette and blew smoke into the air. My phone pinged with a text. I counted to ten, then reached for my phone and opened the text. Hey, how are you? This takes time. I talked to him. Ciao, Sabine. I glanced over my window balcony and smoked for a while longer. Then I texted. I am here for another day. Tell him I love him. I stared at the words as I counted the seconds. Then I pressed send. Then I sat on the edge of my bed, switched on the television and watched a Breton festival report, but all the time my mind was on Max. You must understand, it is difficult for him, but I tell him, she is your sister. Yes, I replied, of course I am, I am the eldest of his three sisters. I deleted the last sentence. A dog barked, so I glanced over my window balcony and saw an old woman leading a tiny terrier. She stepped into a late-night cafe and her dog followed. I watched them from my balcony and through the cafe window I saw the old woman sit on a chair then seat her dog on her lap. They were served speedily with tea, ham and cheese. It seemed so ordinary for all three of them. I went back to the television, stared at it for a few seconds, then turned the sound up so I could fall asleep thinking everything was normal. I ate a croissant, ducked, in hot chocolate the next morning. Then I went out for some sea air. 
There was a cold wind and a man with one leg stopped to heave breadcrumbs into the air for the seagulls. He nodded at me and I nodded back. He watched me for a while as I walked up and down the beach. Then he yelled something, but I didn't bother to understand him. After a while, he gave up and hopped away on his crutches. I stood for a while longer and stared at the grey, rolling sea. Then I texted, If he does not come, I can go to where he lives. The reply was quick. No, please, I am talking to him. Be optimistic. Ciao, Sabine. I was having a morning coffee in a quick fast food restaurant when the last text came through. Salut. 6pm at the Galway Inn. Perhaps you have been there. They serve good food. The children love it when their father brings them there. I had prepared myself to meet Max in any situation. I had play-acted in front of the mirror in my bathroom. I had experimented with my tone of voice in supermarket queues. I walked into pubs, ordered a gin and tonic, sat somewhere near to the entrance so I could imagine seeing Max for the first time in 20 years. Hello, Max. Hi. I never got him to say my name in my imagination. It was stuck in his throat, my throat, rooted hard. The Galway Inn wasn't busy, so I ordered a coffee and waited and watched each time the pub's door open and closed. Six minutes, we are parking. Ciao. When he came through the door, I thought, there he is. Tall, wearing a North Face jacket. His strawberry blonde hair was paler. His freckles were numerous. He approached and said, hi. I lifted my arms and put them round his back. He did the same. Then we let go and his two kids held out their hands to shake mine. This is Nez. This is Antoine. Hello, I said. Then Sabine kissed both my cheeks. Finally, no more texts, yes? She stirred me back to my chair and sat next to me. Oh, don't worry about Max. He is with the children. We have to talk a little first, yes? I have presents for the children, I said, and handed a red carrier bag across the table to Max. His eyes did not flick over mine once. A hole opened in my stomach like a sneer. And what did you expect, you stupid bitch? Inez and Antoine squealed and unwrapped their gifts. I'd gone for the generic mainstays of a colourful, wacky encyclopaedia of the Irish language, pamputis from the Iron Islands and Irish linen unisex shirts for both of them. Thank your aunt, Max said. The pub server came in the middle of their thanks, so they switched to calling out, Frit, Frit, Papa, Frit. Mum and Dad send their love, I told Max. Yeah, he said. That's nice. Tell them I love them back. I am having a vegetable curry, Sabine announced to the pub server. She looked at me. The same, I said. Frites and beer for me, Max said. You look well, Max, I said. He nodded, but kept his eyes on his kids. Don't touch your presence with ketchup fingers. Hey, you know the drill, hey. Sabine touched my arm. I am so happy to be able to speak to you in real life, she whispered. And I glanced at Max's profile, wondering if his ears were listening. And before you speak with him, I have to know what you are going to say to him. I looked at her. It has taken me so long to get him to this happy place where he is now, so nothing should be destroyed, should it? Oh, 
I said. Sabine smiled. He suffered so much more than you or your sisters. I know you all suffered and your father's temper was immense, but he suffered more. No, the beatings. We were all beaten, I said. Yes, but he was beaten more. I was the first, I said. Yes, but he was beaten the hardest, Sabine said. And I wanted to laugh in her face while my spine prickled up into a thousand serrated edges under my skin, and I marvelled at how well Max had assembled his defences. Let it go, my sisters had advised me. Let him go. Let him die in years to come, and none of us will go to his funeral. But I was the first, I reminded them, and I was supposed to have stopped him. I ate a little of my vegetable curry, studying my brother as he spoke with his kids, and a few times he had directed a smile towards Sabine, who, after her third smile at him, turned to me and said, He was so afraid to come tonight, but I told him, as I have told you, she is your sister and she loves you. I laughed. Sabine smiled. Yes? Sabine had a middling-sized face with a pointed chin and large blue eyes. She had blonde hair cut into spiky layers that covered her ears and grazed her shoulders. Twenty years is such a long time to finally say hello, she said. Well, I was growing up, then I had college and more college. And you're the only sister to visit Max. Air tickets are expensive since COVID. What do you want to talk to him about? Just things, I said. He smiled. She smiled. I don't want him upset. Oh, I said. And anyway, it is a school night and we will be leaving soon. As if she had rung a bell, Max stood up saying, Okay, kids, home time. Max, I said. He looked at me. Sorry, the kids have school tomorrow. I want to talk with you, I said. He was handing over his car to pay for the dinner and shrugged and smiled. You look really good, you know. That hole in my stomach tightened to a crack as Inez and Antoine kissed my face au revoir, followed by their mother who squeezed and patted my shoulder goodbye. Max walked out of the pub and we all followed. You should visit the World War II bunkers before you leave, Sabine said. I pushed past her to where Max stood holding Inez's hands as she danced on tiptoe. Max. Inez looked at me. You have the same skin as me. What? I said. Inez nodded at my lower bare arm, visible because of my loose cardigan cuff. Creamy white, like me, see? I felt the crack tighten harder. Do you remember that sweatshirt with no sleeves you used to wear, Max? You had urban toreador ironed on it from dire straits. Remember? He was smiling down at Inez and shaking his head. No. Then his eyes grazed past mine, so I made them come back. You thought you were something, I said. I stared at him, right into the 17-year-old boy he had been, when he had known what he had done, when I had known too, when every time I went to tell, the words stuck inside me, because everything I was had now boiled dark and it kept boiling until I starved or gorged or cut or hit, and until now, when everything 
had nowhere to go and I wanted to tear my hands into his heart, unroot it and stamp it flat. I was a kid, he said. All kids think they're something. We are nothing, I said. The crack inside me tightened further. You're nothing. You're not even a name to us anymore. The crack inside me smoothed except for tiny fissures where I decided something good might grow there after all. I let him go. I went down to the beach and stood ankle deep in the fast surf and I let him go. Let him be nothing, I screamed out over the sea. Let him be nothing but a name that will die someday. I kept screaming until another scream answered, Hey, bitches better respect, pow pow. A girl waved at me from the crowd of party-goers at the World War II bunker. Come on, come on. So I walked up there and she handed me a can of beer and some kitchen paper to wipe my tears on my face. Then she sat me down next to her and her friends. They had a fire going and some guy decided to play guitar. I nearly laughed at the cliched silliness of it all, but I stopped myself because I had to breathe. And I had to keep on breathing because what else is there but nothing? I had to live. I really had to live. The guitar was beautiful. Everything was beautiful. The sea smell, my toes in sand, the fire, the beer. I focused on the bluest flames of a fire until I felt as light as air and I remembered I was wearing my red dress. So I danced and I kept on dancing. Orla, can you just tell me, you know, how did you start out as a writer? Um, I started out really just by reading my mother's books. Um, my father wasn't much of a fiction reader. He still isn't. Um, but my mother very much loved fiction. And so what I used to do is I just, I'd pick up a book and I'd read it. And, you know, we, um, I was very, very aware. I was about, I think I was about 10 or 11 and we were living in Malawi, and at that time it had a dictator, and so TV was outlawed, <laughs> and everything was heavily censored. If you went in and you went into the Zomba Club, um, the Gymkhana Club there, uh, you went for to see a film, it was all censored as well. And um, if it came to a kissing scene or anything like that, it probably very quick peck, and then everything is blacked out. And my mother's, um, so books were, books were what I had to read. And so I read an awful lot of books. I also read an awful lot of plays, American plays, as well as Shakespeare and that sort of thing. And I just decided that's what I would like to do. And so I used to, um, I used to make up little stories and write them down. So that's what I did. Yes, <laughs> that's what made me, that's when I, um, I sort of considered myself a writer. Yes. And you write both poetry and fiction, so mm. what's the difference in writing the two of them? That's a really good question, because sometimes I don't know the difference. Do you know, I had one story, I had one poem where I later made into a story. Um, I think with me, it's sort of rhythm and the feeling that you get, you can, if it, if it's, um, 
if it's a very sort of punchy feeling that you get that I get straight away, then I think, okay, this most probably is a poem. And when the words come out and then they seem to say everything that has to be said. Um, whereas with a story for me, it's almost like a sick feeling in my stomach and where I know there's something there that's that I need to tease out. I need to find out what's what it's, you know, what it's saying or what it wants me to say. So, yes, um, I think for me that's the difference. That's how I know. It's sort of a banal um, sort of difference. Yes, that's how I know. And you, you, sometimes, and you kind of feel a quicker, or at least I feel a quicker rhythm in the words. And uh, you still feel a rhythm when you read a, a story, but uh, with, a, with a poem for me, it's almost there. The rhythm's almost there immediately. And if I'm wrong, well, then I could still use it for something else. I've often just had a word, a line, and it doesn't go anywhere, and it certainly doesn't go into a story. I had a line um, for a poem that I wrote recently, and I had it, that line for about four years before I could do anything with it. So sometimes there are the curious moments. You think, why am I even thinking this line? And, you know, what good is it to me if I can't go any further with it, you know? But, uh, yes. So it finally did make it into a poem. <laughs> and that sick feeling you're talking about for a story, is it something that's there kind of, you know, gnawing away at, at you or bothering you until you can get it out sort of the story? Yes, yes, it is. And sometimes even after a story, I can be quite sick in my in my stomach after a story. Um, I always, you know, I'm always very wary about when, you know, when um, people ask me questions like this because I think... Um, you know, it's just writing a story, as an awful lot of people would do. But especially when it's something... I love writing stories that make me feel as if I'm in them. Because I think that's where there's real power then. And it, when the reader is reading them, I feel there's a better chance of them seeing themselves as a character in the story and living that story as much as it is possible for them to. So... That's what I write. If I can feel myself in the story, um, then I know it's a good story, in my opinion. If it's a good story, then I then I don't care what anybody else says, you know. So looking at the story, the theme of the this whole series is harness your hopes. Mm. Uh, and yet the story definitely has a darker edge. So mm. where do you see the hope in the story? I see the hope in the story when she comes to realize that nothing is ever going to change with her brother, that the hope that she had for him to admit, to say sorry, to do that, is not going to happen. Then he's got his son and his daughter, and you're thinking, she's thinking, you know, um, it's all like fait accompli in front of her, that that's a life, that's his, you know, he's he's there, he's... He's got his defences, whatever whatever they are, and his wife. So she's thinking, perhaps do as her sister suggested, let him, let him go, and when he dies, none of us will go to his funeral, which is their way of um, saying, not only to them, but to everybody there, that he, was, he, he, become, he became nothing for us. So I would see that the hope is where, the hope for her the character is where she realizes at the sea's edge that she really and beyond that she really has to live you you can't you can't um 
you can't tie yourself to a horror like that and and wait for the horror to apologize you have to just say okay I'll, I'll be I'll go on and I'll do something and I'll be somebody that can live and that's what she says I, I really really want to live and I just liked the idea of her joining the kids and I just thought you know because it's such a cliche thing like some guy you know thinks he's great and he pulls out his guitar and he strums it and all that sort of thing. And I just thought that was really nice because I thought that's exactly what happens. And I thought to myself that something that cliched would, for her would be so human and welcoming and so that she would feel she's accepted. And I didn't want to go beyond that for her because I thought for that moment she actually feels, if not happy, then a bit more accepting of herself and uh, you know that's what I like about short stories they leave it um, I didn't want to finish her end like as in thinking you know it's going to be so hard afterwards which um, I just wanted her to feel for this moment in this cliched happiness that there was um, hope for her that was it there's a great sense of place in the story and of being abroad and she talks about almost trying to be someone new, maybe when she's calling out mm. to the, the people at the start. Or she mm. talks about, uh, you know, using a different voice mm. while, while going into different places. So how important were those two things, you know, the sense of place and the being something new in when you were writing the story? Um, that's, re- that's funny when you say that, because I've noticed an awful lot in my work that the characters somehow always want to be new. They, you know, and I think that must be something in my uh, psyche or, you know, in the way I look at the world. I love sense of place because it goes back to um, it goes back to my feeling that I'm in the story as a character. And um, I, I, I make no excuses for that. You know, I, I, I really feel as a writer for me, it's important to live the story as I write it. So and I had been in Lorien once. You know, my sister was uh, studying out there, so we went out to visit her. And it's a, it's a very unusual-looking place. It had been bombed to practically nothing in World War II, so everything was rather utilitarian-looking, and very rarely would you find one of the old French houses, you know. And um, everybody looked a little bit... Um, uh, there were an awful lot of uh, people who didn't have legs, didn't have arms. It was just such a very different place. So I was quite taken aback by that and that, you know, the little old lady at the cafe, that actually did happen. It happens often, I think, even in Paris. <laughs> As I said, I love I love being able to look at something and touch it with my mind's eye. Like, um, it's something I've always done ever since I was a child. I'd look at something and I'd know by my mind's eye how exactly it would feel to my fingers or how something it's just something that I've I've loved doing and I think that that helps me in my writing so I I I would know what it would be like to have your to rest your elbows on a balcony and look over and watch this woman come with her little dog so um yes I I I like the fact that you got a sense of place in my story because um it's very it's important to me and, you know, it's important that I get that done because I have failed too before getting that done. And you always have to go back and 
fix it, you know. But that came quite, quite naturally, that story, you know. Are short stories difficult in that they have to be wrapped up in a certain number of pages? I know for this project, I kind of told every writer, you know, you're going to be reading the story. It has to be roughly around 15 minutes. Yeah. Is it more difficult when you have a restriction like that? Or do the parameters help in some kind of way? I think the parameters help a great deal because um, it really depends. I mean, I always look, I always think, okay, yes. I look upon it as an experiment, really. So you've got 15 minutes and you can tell a story in 15 minutes. Um, The great thing about short stories is you have to be um, economical with your words. So it's like poetry, you know, and it's like writing a play script, the words have to say any something. Um, and so you have to be quick about it, but you have to have enough emotion and believability and in the voice or in the phrasing. And, um, and I think having the parameters um, in some way is quite freeing as well, because it's saying, well, this is what, it, this is stop, this is go, um, and now, but you can do anything you like in between. And I think that's wonderful. I don't mean that novel writing is blurry or florid or baggy compared to it. It isn't. I, uh, I would feel for a novel, I would, I would bring, bring forth my own short story techniques because I don't like hanging around on the page. You know, the reader needs to, I want the reader just to, basically put on their running shoes and come with you in the words. And, um, of course, you pace. Like in a novel, you would, in a short story, you'd have pacing as well. So, you, But I think if you're a reader, if you grow up as a reader, as I grew up, all of that just kind of finds its way via osmosis into you. As And when you, become, when you want to become a writer, when you start writing yourself, that's all, all of that is there, I think. And you need to... Um, it just you just need to trust yourself as you're writing, and um, and the glory of it is at the end if you're going over the time you just say okay I go back and I cut off the fat you know and again you just have to you just have to keep your as as you as a writer as the character as the the person that's writing the story and also in the story will say you know, as the writer you just have to make sure that okay if I cut this bit here then what follows is natural anyway. It makes sense. So it's, I don't know, I I just find it fascinating, really. It's just pure editing, but I I find it fascinating, you know, as well as I find anything about writing fascinating, to tell you the truth. (laughs) So tell me what's coming up next for you, or what what projects do you have coming up? Well, I am very, very lucky that um, Dura Press from Inverin. They're uh, small um, publishers. Uh, they're wonderful and um, they really, um, they value um, the writers and they push, you know, they push them forward and um, they've won a number of, they've won some awards or they've, you know, come. They are going to uh, publish my next collection of short stories. This is going to be in Lorient's one of them. And, uh, so that should be published next autumn, you know, 2023. And uh, what else? What else? What else? I am working on a novel. It is kind of different. And, but I was very, very happy to have been 
um, granted um, a literary bursary from the Arts Council and that's going towards helping me. So that's paying bills and the like <laughs> and, uh, and helping me to, um, just helping me to live at the moment while I'm working on this. So I've just actually finished the, well, it's sort of the first first proper kind of collection of my proper manuscript. And uh, so no doubt I'll be going going through them again. But um, yes, in my head, it's more like they're more or less finished. So now my head is, my, my guts, my head are focused on what this next, the shape of the next um, project, the novel, how it's going to be shaped. Um, it's kind of unusual. I know it will be slightly unusual. I know that I can feel that, but um, um, it's just just basically kind of allowing myself to sort of wallow in that feeling for a while and, and it'll come to me soon. <laughs> okay, thanks, Orla. You're very welcome. Thank you, Alan. Harness Your Hopes was produced and presented by Alan Meany. Music was by Eamon Bailey. The writer on this episode was Orla Foyle. The programme is supported by a Creative Ireland bursary from Galway County Council. <laughs>